All right. And uh, since we're only doing two trumpets or two uh, bowls this time, uh, feel free to jump in if you've got any questions. Uh, we're not going to go into as much depth on the Battle of Armageddon, or rather better, the War of Armageddon this time, because uh, we're going to do a whole session on it next time, because there's a lot to be brought out there. Uh, and the text here in Revelation doesn't really go into the Battle of Armageddon very much, except for uh, where it interacts with uh, the actual city of Babylon, because Babylon is going to occupy chapters 17 and 18, um, a more detailed description of its destruction. Uh, but there's really eight different campaigns to Armageddon, detailed primarily in the Old Testament prophets. Um, and it's, uh, it's a pretty interesting study. So we're going to do that next week. But this week, we do get the, uh, the beginning of that war. We'll actually see the first stage and the last stage. Um, and that's what the sixth and seventh bold judgments uh, give us, but they don't give us the, the content that comes in between. And I think uh, doing a more fleshed out study of that is going to help us understand chapter 17 and 18 better. Uh, so you can see here then in the chart uh, between the dragon and Jesus, that's chapter 16. And underneath that is 17 and 18, because that's more details about what goes on um, in this sixth and seventh bowl judgment. And the sixth and seventh bowl judgment, or better said, the seventh bowl judgment is the end of the seventh trumpet. And the seventh trumpet and all the bowls are the end of the seal judgments. So what we're seeing tonight is the end of all three rounds of judgment in one big smack. Uh, so it's, it's going to hurt, to say the least. Uh, broken it up uh, pretty much verse by verse. It was a little harder to break up by section because each one deals with one topic, but there's a couple parentheticals in here. Uh, so let's start with verse one. Uh, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. So obviously we see some things that we recognize and some things that we don't. The Euphrates, we all have a general sense of where that is. We'll look at some maps in a second. Uh, but that is the eastern border of Israel's promised land. Um, it's actually the northeastern border. Uh, it is the bank of, or uh, Babylon is on the bank of the Euphrates. And uh, these kings of the east, we don't know exactly who they are, uh, partly because the politics of the last days are going to be a little different than they are now. Those could change overnight, so we know generally the area that they're going to come from. Uh, and being that this is going to happen so quickly in the last few days of the tribulation period, it's likely that these uh, armies will already have been staged before uh, the bold judgments begin. But here is a picture of the Euphrates River near uh, historical Babylon. Uh, which is about 40 miles south of modern-day Baghdad. Uh, the river, remember, will be turned to blood at this time and will have been blood for at least a few hours, if not a few days. Um, so it's going to be kind of a quagmire that's uh, pretty disgusting. And when it dries up, um, it's going to uh, allow these kings of the east to cross the river um, and head towards their final 
uh, final battle, which is about 100 or two, or 150 or 200 miles uh, away um, in the uh, valley of Megiddo. Here's that, or I guess it's 300-ish. Uh, here's a map. You can see uh, Babylon over in Babylonia and Baghdad just above it. Uh, these armies are going to spend probably a couple of days crossing the Arabian desert um, while uh, other things are going on in Basra and, uh, and Jerusalem uh, directly affecting Israel. And that's going to be some of the stuff that we look at next week when we do the uh, dedicated study on the campaigns of Armageddon. Uh, but I think it is important to note that this is the eastern border of the promised land of, uh, of Israel. So this river of Euphrates goes all the way back to, uh, to Genesis 15, where God promises to give the land to the descendants of Abraham from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Uh, and this was never achieved uh, by Israel. They never received this land fully. And that's one reason why we've done our breakout sessions every two months or so, where we look at the biblical covenants, because this is, uh, this is what we are headed towards in the millennial kingdom, is Israel receiving this full portion of their land. Um, in Joshua 1.4, we see that the wilderness um, and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. Uh, and this um, is said it was promised to Moses, and God is uh, reestablishing this promise to, uh, to uh, Joshua, but they never fully take all of this land. Um, so this land is still promised to them, and they will receive it in the millennial kingdom. Additionally, and uh, more a point of interest, uh, here is modern day, or a in that blue box is historical Babylon, the city. Uh, and just south of that is a little ziggurat called Edemenanki, uh, which is probably the location of the Tower of Babel, uh, which was destroyed by Alexander the Great. If that makes, uh, makes you realize just how recent this uh, tower was standing, um, about 300 years uh, prior to the advent of Christ, it was still uh, it was still present, and it was present there when Daniel was in captivity in Babylon, uh, and it's likely going to be the uh, location of the Antichrist's kingdom in the or during the uh, tribulation period. So this really draws the theme of uh, this antithetical city all the way from Genesis chapter eleven. Uh, through the last chapters of Genesis. Um, you can see another picture here, a little more exaggerated of the Tower of Babel uh, on the banks of the Euphrates River in the Valley of Shinar. Uh, all right, so uh, this tower was there, this city was there during the days of Daniel, and that's where Israel was taken captive uh, in the uh, 600 or 6th century B.C., and this river has dried up before, uh, although previously it dried up 
by man's work later during the tribulation period. It's going to dry up by God's uh, miraculous work. But I thought this was a pretty interesting story, so I should share it with you guys. Uh, back in Daniel chapter 5, you'll remember this is the writing on the wall chapter, uh, where they're having a big party in the city of uh, Babylon, and Belshazzar, the, the king, um, who I think he was the nephew of Nebuchadnezzar, is now the king of Babylon, and King Cyrus comes and takes the land, takes the city, um, and they do so relatively peacefully. Uh, they are able to sneak in because they drain the river Euphrates or they divert the water into a lake. Um, and they're able to walk in through the, uh, through the river gates. So here it says that same night, Belshazzar, the king, or the Chaldean king was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. So this, uh, Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Uh, this records in the biblical text that transfer of the kingdom, the, the fall of the Babylonian kingdom, uh, which you remember was the, uh, the first stage in the four-part uh, kingdom of the Gentiles that stretches from the captivity of Israel all the way through the end of the Antichrist's reign. Um, so this is the head of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, statue giving way to the shoulders and the arms, um, this Medo-Persian government. It's recorded in a bit more detail by Herodotus. Um, so I've copied what he has to say on this here in his uh, histories. It says Cyrus opened a canal and so turned the river into a, the lake. And as the water of the Euphrates subsided, its bed became passable and the Persians who were waiting for this to happen, entered the city by way of the river, having the water no higher than the middle of their thigh. In this way, Babylon was taken the first time. Uh, so again, important to uh, recognize that nothing overtly miraculous happened um, at this point. So this does not fulfill the prophecies of Isaiah, which we're going to read in a second, that promised the uh, drying up of the, uh, the riverbed of Euphrates for the invasion of Babylon and her kingdoms. Uh, and that's important because they're, oh man, you guys have to remember all the way back to last January, we talked about preterist views of the book of Revelation that claim that this event has already happened and it happened at the uh, sack of Babylon by uh, King Cyrus. And that's not true. Um, as you can see here, it's, it's reported by Herodotus that nothing miraculous happened and it wasn't the armies of the east. In fact, it was armies of uh, the, uh, the north that came in and, uh, and took the city of Babylon. But moving on here, uh, we have seen God miraculously dry up rivers before. Um, I'm only showing you one example. He dried up um, another river so that the Israelites could pass into the promised land. But he dried up the Red Sea um, so that they could pass out of the land of Egypt. So it says, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Um, so again, we shouldn't be surprised seeing something like this in the text of Revelation, and we shouldn't think anything but liter literally when we see it. 
not only because God has given us a record that he has done this before, but it's the fingerprint of God showing that um, just as he's done before, he can do again. And often, the second time he does something, he does it even greater than the first time. Um, here's that prophecy of Isaiah uh, that speaks of the destruction of Babylon. And being that Babylon is not presently a, uh, a nation, um, it will need to be made a nation again, or at least a kingdom, uh, in the last days in order for these prophecies to be fulfilled. And so sure are these prophecies to be fulfilled because they are the word of God uh, that we can uh, be certain that a kingdom of Babylon will exist in the last days as well. Uh, but here, Isaiah 11, and this prophecy is actually going to stretch all the way into, I think it's chapter 14, speaks of the destruction of Babylon, but we're only going to read three verses out of it. Uh, actually, we'll read a couple. But uh, here, Isaiah 11, 14 says, they will swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines on the west. Now, again, this is uh, speaking of the campaign of Armageddon, so we're going to fill in more detail next week. But this is uh, towards the end of the campaign of Armageddon, where the Israelites are led by Christ um, in conquering their enemies. So here it says, they will swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines on the west. Together they will plunder the sons of the east. They will possess Edom and Moab, and the sons of Ammon will be subject to them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. And he will wave his hand over the river with his scorching wind. And he will strike it into seven streams and make men walk over dry shot. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will be left, just as there was for Israel in the day that they came up out of the land of Egypt. Um, so God is prophesying here through the prophet Isaiah that in the same way as he led them out of Egypt before by drying up the waters of uh, the Red Sea, so he is going to lead them into victory over their enemies in the last days by drying up uh, this river, which we know from Revelation to be the river of Euphrates. And if we go back here, no, I won't go back. I can't find it. Anyways, Isaiah 13 comes towards the end of this prophecy of the destruction of Babylon when it's, uh, it's kind of a parallel, um, Isaiah 13 and 14 to Revelation 17 and 18, which speaks of the complete destruction of the city of Babylon. Um, here it says, and Babylon, the beautiful, uh, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation, nor will the Arab pitch his tent there, nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there. Now, these last two phrases are probably the most important in interpreting this verse uh, because to this day, Arabs pitch their tents there and shepherds make their flocks lie down there by the river of Euphrates. Um, what this is saying is this will be such a complete destruction that for the rest of this earth's history, which will have a thousand years after this event, uh, no Arab will ever pitch his tent in that area and no shepherds will ever have their flocks lie down there. So if you can look to that area and see uh, nomadic tribes or shepherds with flocks in that region, this verse has not taken place yet. 
So the destruction of Babylon has not yet happened um, in its complete sense. It's only a temporary destruction that has taken place um, in the past because Babylon was never actually destroyed. It was conquered, taken over, and kind of left uh, to fall apart, but it was never actually destroyed uh, even in the slightest part of how uh, scripture describes its destruction. Uh, it really was just kicked to the side of the road and uh, forgotten about. In fact, the story of how uh, Alexander the Great destroyed the Tower of Babel um, is interesting because he didn't actually destroy it through warfare. Uh, the previous uh, the previous owners of it, uh, Darius, they removed the ramps that went up the tower so that they could turn it into more of a fortress that could they could be protected within. Uh, when Alexander the Great uh, took over at the kingdom and now uh, Babel was in his jurisdiction, he wanted to rebuild it to its former glory. So they were going to take it down and build it again. Uh, but when he took it down, he died young and it never got built up again. Um, so it wasn't really destroyed. Um, it was taken down for renovation and never put back up. So the scriptures that speak of the destruction of Babylon uh, have not yet been fulfilled. All right, but let's move on in our text of Revelation because uh, we've got a little bit of a parenthesis that's going to speak about how these nations are gathered against Israel. So verse uh, 13 says, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. And this is an interesting verse that's very graphic. Um, again, the only word here that's metaphorical is frogs. Everything else is literal. So there will be unclean spirits that come out of the physical bodies of these um, of these three characters of the end times, uh, and they will be uh, unclean like frogs, but that doesn't mean that they're actual literal frogs coming out of the mouths. Uh, however, they are literal unclean spirits or demons coming out of the mouths of these creatures. And these creatures are the satanic trinity. Uh, they are metaphorical, and we know that because of Revelation 12 and 13, uh, used metaphorical language to speak of their characteristics as animals. These will be three uh, individuals that are present on the earth in the last days. Um, the dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the land, who is the false Christ and the false prophet. Um, again, this makes up the satanic trinity. And these unclean spirits are spirits of demons. We have them, uh, I think, very well identified in Matthew 12. Uh, when Jesus is speaking uh, of his miraculous works and showing that by these works, he's verified his ministry and his claim to be the Christ. Uh, I think it's a nice parallel here with the satanic trinity, which is going to try to prove uh, its deity uh, by, by, uh, by miracle miraculous works. Uh, but here in Matthew 12, 26 to 27, Jesus says, if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. 
how then will his kingdom stand if I, by Beelzebub, cast out demons? By whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. So notice we've got subject and object in Jesus' statement being Satan uh, and Satan. Can Satan cast out Satan? Uh, this comes in the context, again, of Jesus casting out a demon from a, uh, an individual. So Jesus is identifying these uh, demonic spirits as part of the kingdom of Satan. So that is what we have coming out of the mouths of these three end times um, characters is spirits of Satan, spirits of demons. <clears throat> and in Revelation 13, 3 through 4, um, I think here is recorded when these demons will enter uh, the bodies of these creatures uh, or these humans. Uh, it says, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and that his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him. So if you remember back to our study in Revelation 13, I told you it's uh, probably through demonic possession uh, that the Antichrist will be resurrected after he is killed uh, at the midpoint of the tribulation. So this is uh, the demonic spirit that has, uh, has entered him, uh, now leaving his body in the last day. All right, but what is the purpose of these spirits leaving these bodies? It says, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. So these are spirits with the express purpose of deceiving the entire world and the world governments to bring their armies together into the Middle East to wage war with God. Uh, now, this seems ridiculous to us, but it, it is not beyond the hubris of Satan, uh, who in Isaiah 14, uh, which again is at the end of the, uh, the prophecy of Babylon's destruction, uh, it speaks of Satan as the one who had five I am statements about how he will raise his kingdom above God's. He thinks he is capable of overcoming God and placing his throne above God's. Um, so it is no wonder that he brings his demonic uh, or he causes his demonic spirits to go out and deceive kings into bringing war against God, the almighty. Uh, however, Although these are spirits of demons, uh, they don't act outside of the will of God. They can't. Uh, they are used, rather, for God's purposes in the same way that these spirits of deception back in 2 Kings were used um, for God's purposes. Uh, here in 2 Kings 22, 19, we've got a really interesting story uh, where we see what's going on in the throne room of God. Uh, on the other side of the coin of his prophets, you could say. So here it's, uh, Micaiah said, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this while another said that. 
Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and so prevail. Go and do so. So God was able to use a deceiving spirit uh, to deceive Ahab, who had refused to listen to Micaiah the prophet and instead was listening to any prophet that would tell him what he wanted to hear. So God allowed this deceiving spirit to go and uh, deceive Ahab's prophets so that Ahab's prophets thought they were prophesying something real um, to Ahab and instead Ahab uh, was led to his destruction. The same thing is happening here in Revelation where the Antichrist, the false prophet, um, Satan himself, think that these spirits are being used to bring war against God and that they will be victorious against God, um, but God is using it to lead them to their ultimate destruction. Uh, it's during the battle of Armageddon that the Antichrist is slain by Christ and is thrown into the uh, lake of fire with the uh, false prophet. All right, but uh, they do go out and they do deceive the rest of the world. And part of that deception begins uh, at the midpoint of the tribulation with the resurrection of the Antichrist, uh, because now uh, they do have credibility, though false credibility, with the rest of the world uh, for claiming deity. In Revelation 13, 13, it says he performed great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. So these false signs and wonders they're using to deceive uh, the rest of the world. He says it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many do not as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Uh, now, you remember, I don't have these verses in here, but uh, back in Matthew 12, um, Jesus uh, rebukes the Pharisees in the first century Jews, uh, and he calls them an adulterous generation who looks for signs. Um, but the signs that they were given, they didn't accept. In fact, Jesus gave them three distinct signs that only the Messiah could perform. And they rejected those and claimed that he was performing them by the power of Satan. Well, now we have the power of Satan in Revelation uh, performing miracles, but none of them are messianic miracles. Messianic miracles were to heal, heal a Jew of leprosy to um, cure a man born blind, and to uh, expel a demon from a deaf mute or from a, from a mute uh, man. None of those three messianic miracles take place in Revelation, yet they will accept the Antichrist as some sort of Messiah. They will accept him as a god because of his resurrection. Uh, as important as the resurrection of Christ is, resurrection is not a messianic miracle. This was a miracle that was performed also by Elijah uh, back in 2 Kings. Uh, resurrections were performed by the disciples. 
But what was not performed was any of those three messianic miracles. In fact, in Mark 9, uh, the disciples attempt to perform one of these messianic miracles. Uh, and this is while Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He comes back down and they were trying to cast out a demon from a mute man. And uh, Jesus tells them that this kind of demon can only be uh, exercised through prayer. And in other words, this demon can only be exercised through the power of God. So why are you trying to exercise him by the regular tactics? This one, you have to depend on God to do. And then what does Jesus do? He goes and he expels that demon from the boy, uh, proving that he is himself God. Uh, because he does not pray and say, God, cast this demon out, but he takes authority and he does it himself, um, something that only God could do. And he does not do it by the power of Beelzebub. But anyways, um, none of these miracles that the false prophet will be doing are messianic miracles because none of them can be. Um, as Jesus said, uh, a house divided cannot stand. Uh, if he were to do it by the power of Beelzebub, it would be Satan casting out Satan. Uh, but we should expect the last days to be days of uh, deception. Uh, I don't have this verse in here either, but in uh, Zechariah 13, it speaks of uh, the false prophets who will arise in Israel, Israel specifically. So the entire world, um, but within Israel also, there will be false prophets that rise up like crazy. Um, and here in Mark 13, we've got a taste of that. It says, for those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, which in this um, context is speaking of Israel, uh, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is, he is there, do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders in order to lead, if possible, or to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Again, in this context is speaking of Israel. In the last days, in these last few hours, the... Uh, the campaign of the false prophet is going to be uh, exponentially greater, and false prophets are going to arise all over the world, enticing the leaders of the world and Israel um, into falling away from God, uh, specifically Israel, uh, rejecting God and coming against him in war as if they had a hope in the world of conquering him. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 through 9 gives the, uh, the Pauline uh, verses on this event. It says, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Again, that's, uh, that happens during the campaign of Armageddon. Uh, that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. 
For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So again, um, this recalls the deceiving spirits that went out during the time of Ahab. Um, God is going to allow this spiritual deception to take place, and it's going to fall on itching ears. Ears that are frustrated with God's wrath that is being poured out in these bold judgments. They're covered in sores. The world's water sources have turned to blood. Uh, the entire earth's lights have gone out. It's dark, and there's sweltering heat. Naturally, um, they are going to turn against the one who has um, dealt out these punishments. And we know from uh, Revelation 6, I believe it's around verse 18, when they say, save us from the wrath of the Lamb, they know who is sending these judgments. They understand who it is. Um, but as we've seen in previous uh, verses in the last week, um, they will continue to blaspheme and reject him rather than accept him. Um, Two-thirds of Israel as well will reject him. Two-thirds of Israel, which will be left at that point, will reject him. Uh, hang on, we've got a couple of chats here. Okay. Just about down. <clears throat> All right. Now we get a little bit of a parenthetical. Well, actually, I don't think it's as parenthetical as, uh, well, I guess as the NASB translation has made it, they put it in uh, parentheses. Uh, I think it's more of an excursus, which is just uh, either John adding his thoughts here, which would be inspired, still scripture, um, or it's, uh, it's uh, kind of a repetition of what has been said to the churches, but given not to the churches here, um, but to Israel of the last days. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, these will be happening during different periods in which um, different expectations are put on the people of Israel. It's still going to be faith alone and Christ alone, but they will not have the gift of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to keep them uh, uh, or to, uh, to keep them in sanctification. So they are going to need to uh, persevere in order to uh, receive full blessing at the Lord's return. Um, so it's essentially not going to be as easy for them. And keep in mind then that they will be uh, possibly even deceived by these deceiving spirits, so that if they are not keeping their eyes on the Lord, they are apt to be deceived and fall away in these last days. Uh, so again, this is reminiscent then, and in fact, uh, notice the verse headings here. What we saw of those last days that Paul was speaking about, God will send upon them a deluding influence, 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12. This is speaking of tribulation saints, not Christians, um, because Christians won't be living in the tribulation period. Uh, this is speaking of those believers, and especially those Jews who will be alive in the last hours of the tribulation period. Moves into the next verse, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we should always give thanks to God. Now he's speaking of the church. For you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the, from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in truth. 
He's speaking of the difference here of the church to the last days of Israel. <clears throat> it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then brethren stand firm and hold to the tradition which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. He's saying, hold on to the doctrine that you've been taught uh, and essentially here be thankful for the gift of the helper, the Holy Spirit, which distinguishes them from the last days. The Holy Spirit will still be at work, but it will not be indwelling believers who come to Christ in the last days in the same way as it does the church. The church is a unique expression of God's people. Here in one of the uh, Jewish epistles, 1 John 2.28, um, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Now, this is not speaking of salvation, but this is speaking of rewards, um, that at his coming, you want to be found in him. In him doesn't mean saved, but in him means continuing in um, the faith. First John 4, 17, by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Now, as I said, this is speaking of the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, not the great white throne judgment. Believers uh, who have been saved eternally by a singular act of faith in Christ, as they continue in faith, build up rewards for themselves in heaven. Uh, but just as Paul and John warn us through their epistles not to lose the faith so as not to lose rewards and not to lose the faith so as not to be found ashamed um, at his coming, uh, so the same warning is going out to the believers in the last days of the tribulation period. But here another one uh, directed towards the church gives us some detail of what this judgment might be like. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8 says, therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the, in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And he continues and says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For... We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So this is speaking of the judgment seat of Christ. We will appear before that judgment seat and be rewarded crowns or a lack thereof uh, for lack of faith. Um, and so will the Jews and other Christians at the end of the tribulation period and all those who are martyred throughout uh, will be uh, before the judgment throne of Christ at his coming, and do not want to be found ashamed at that coming. So he is essentially saying here, do not be deceived by the deceiving spirits that will go out into the entire world. Uh, now this is speaking of Israel specifically, and remember, the last half of the tribulation is called the time of Jacob's trouble. It will be a, a particular tribulation on Israel, uh, which is essentially the cumulative judgment for their rebellion or rejection um, of the Messiah, uh, but is 
uh, part of their rounds of judgment spoken of all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30 that we looked at when we saw the land covenant. Um, so here in Ezekiel 16, it speaks of the last days as a judgment on Israel for her sins. It says, therefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries, uh, with your lovers and with all your detestable idols, and because of the blood of your sons, which you gave to idols. Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, even all those whom you loved and all those whom you hated. So I will gather them against you from every direction and expose your nakedness to them that they may see your nakedness. These last days of Israel, um, God is going to expose Israel for their rejection of the Messiah um, because it is an embarrassment. It is a national embarrassment. Um, but nonetheless, he is coming to rescue them. Um, I just realized I never read that verse uh, from our text in Revelation, so I'll read it now. Revelation 16, 15, the parenthetical verse says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. When the Lord comes and rescues Israel, um, he wants for none of them to be ashamed at his coming. All right, the text uh, here, the description of the sixth bold judgment returns uh, to the main line of thought and says, and they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Uh, so this is speaking of the deceiving spirits which are gathering the nations of the world against God and brings them to a location which in Hebrew is Armageddon. Har is the uh, Hebrew word for mountain or uh, hilly lands and Megiddon is probably the land uh, Megiddo. In Revelation 14, 19 through 20, uh, we got a foretaste of this. It says, so the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Um, so this entire valley of Megiddo in the hilly lands um, of the Jezreel Valley is going to be filled up to the horse's bridle, which is about four feet high, uh, with blood. Uh, Joel is an interesting minor prophet, uh, an easy, quick read, just three chapters, and it is almost entirely focused on these last few days of Israel. Uh, Joel 3 uh, verses 1 through 2 speaks of this valley of Jehoshaphat, which is the same uh, valley here spoken of. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. So notice here the subject of the action is God. He's saying that he will gather them uh, into this valley of Jehoshaphat. 
So he must be using these deceiving spirits again in the same way as he used the deceiving spirit in Ahab's day. The campaign of Armageddon, um, spoken of in Zechariah 13 and 14. Remember, 13 speaks of the uh, false prophets, the deceivers in Israel. Here, Zechariah 14 speaks of the Lord's return, um, which is predicated by those false prophets in Israel. It says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other toward the south. We're going to see the earthquake that probably causes this to happen in just a minute. Uh, you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come in all the holy ones with him. That uh, looks forward to that same prophecy of Enoch that uh, Jude records uh, that all the thousands of holy ones will return with the Lord. That includes us in that uh, quantity of people. Continuing on here, in that day, there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. Again, that matches the time period that Revelation is speaking of when he darkens the sun. For it will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time, there will be light. So the light will be restored at the end of this battle. And at that time, in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the Eastern Sea and the other half toward the Western Sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one in his name, the only one. So this is speaking of the battle or the, uh, the battles of Armageddon. Uh, they're listed here in order, um, chronological order by uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum. And again, we're going to study these in more detail next week. Um, but essentially, we've got the assembling of the allies of the Antichrist. That's the beginning of our verse uh, or of uh, bowl, bowl number six. Uh, the destruction of Babylon, which is going to be the majority of chapters 17 and 18. The fall of Jerusalem, which we see in the text, but mostly in the Old Testament minor prophets. Uh, the armies of the Antichrist at Basra. Uh, I believe that's mostly in the major prophets that we'll be looking for those. The national regeneration of Israel, uh, which is in, I believe, every single prophet speaks of this except for uh, Jonah. Uh, the second coming of the Messiah, which again is in most of the prophets. The battle from Basra 
which ends in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And this is where the Antichrist will be slain. And then the victorious ascent of Jesus Christ upon the Mount of Olives, which we just read about in Zechariah and we'll read about in a few other places as well. Um, so these are the eight stages of the campaign of Armageddon um, that will be happening in the last day or days of um, the tribulation period. So you can look forward to more details on that next week. Thank you.